Chapter 15 Revelation The Quest of the Silver Fleece by W. E. B. Du Bois Recorded by A. J. Hilton This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Harry Cresswell was scowling over his breakfast. It was not because his apartment in the New York Hotel was not satisfactory or his breakfast unpalatable. Possibly a rather bewildering night in Broadway was expressing its influence, but he was satisfied that his ill temper was due to a paragraph in the morning paper. It is stated on good authority that the widow of the late multimillionaire Job Gray will announce a large and carefully planned scheme of Negro education in the South and will richly endow schools in South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, and Texas cresswell finally thrust his food away he knew that mrs gray helped miss smith's school and supposed she would continue to do so with that in mind he had striven to impress her hoping that she might trust his judgment in later years he had no idea however that she meant to endow the school or entertained wholesale plans for negro education the knowledge made him suspicious why had neither mary nor john taylor mentioned this was there after all some nigger-loving conspiracy back of the cotton combine he took his hat and started downtown once in john taylor's broadway office he opened the subject abruptly the more so perhaps because he felt a resentment against taylor for certain unnamed or partially voiced assumptions here was a place however for speech and he spoke almost roughly taylor what does this mean he thrust the clipping at him mean that mrs gray is going to get rid of some of her surplus cash is going to endow some nigger schools taylor dryly retorted it must be stopped declared cresswell the other's brows drew up why in a surprised tone why why do you think the plantation system can be maintained without laborers do you think there's the slightest chance of cornering cotton and buying the black belt if the niggers are unwilling to work under present conditions do you know the man that stands ready to gobble up every inch of the cotton land on this country at a price which no trust can hope to rival john taylor's interest quickened why no he returned sharply who the black man whose woolly head is filled with ideas of rising we're striving by main force to prevent this and here come your damned northern philanthropists to plant schools why taylor it'll knock the cotton trust to hell don't get excited said taylor judiciously we've got things in our hands it's the gray money you know that is back of us that's just what confounds me declared the perplexed young man are you men fools or rascals don't you see the two schemes can't mix they're dead opposite mutually contradictory absolutely taylor checked him it was odd to behold harry cresswell so disturbed well wait a moment let's see sit down wish i had a cigar for you but i don't smoke do you happen to have any whiskey handy no i don't drink well what the devil oh well fire away now see here we control the gray millions of course we've got to let her play with her income and that's considerable her favorite game just now is negro education and she's planning to go in heavy her adviser in this line however is smith and he belongs to us what smith why the man who's going to be senator from new jersey 
He has a sister teaching in the South. You know, of course, it's at your home where my sister Mary taught. Great Scott! Is that woman's brother planning to spend this money? Why, are you daft? See here, American cotton spinning supremacy is built on cheap cotton. Cheap cotton is built on cheap negros. Educating, or rather trying to educate negros, will make them restless and discontented. That is, scarce and dear as workers. Don't you see you're planning to cut off your noses? This Smith school particularly has nearly ruined our plantation. It's stuck almost in our front yard. You are planning to put our plow hands all to studying Greek, and at the same time to corner the cotton crop? Rot! John Taylor caressed his lean jaw. New point of view to me. I sort of thought education would improve things in the South, he commented, unmoved. It would if we ran it. We? Yes, we Southerners. Um, I see. See here, let's talk to Easterly about this. They went into the next office and after a while got audience with the trust magnate. Mr. Easterly heard the matter carefully and waved it aside. Oh, that doesn't concern us, Taylor. Let Cresswell take care of the whole thing. We'll see that Smith does what Cresswell wants. But Taylor shook his head. Smith would kick. Mrs. Gray would get suspicious and the devil be to pay. This is better. Form a big committee of northern businessmen like yourself, philanthropists like Vanderpool and southerners like Cresswell. Let them be a sort of Negro education steering committee. We'll see that on such committee you southerners get what you want, control of Negro education. That sounds fair, but how about the Smith School? My father writes me that they're showing signs of expecting money right off. Is that true? If it is, I want it stopped. It will ruin our campaign for the Farmers League. John Taylor looked at Cresswell. He thought he saw something more than general policy or even racial prejudice, something personal in his vehemence. The Smith School was evidently a severe thorn in the flesh of this man, all the more reason for mollifying him. Then, too, there was something in his argument. It was not wise to start educating these Negroes and getting them discontented just now. Ignorant labor was not ideal, but it was worth too much to employers to lose it now. Educated Negro labor might be worth more to Negroes, but not to the cotton combine. Hmm. Well, then, and John Taylor went into a brown study while Cresswell puffed impatiently at a cigarette. I have it, said Taylor. Cresswell sat up. First, let Mr. Easterly get Smith. Easterly turned to the telephone. Is that you, Smith? Well, this is Easterly. Yes, how about Mrs. Gray's education schemes? Yes. Hmm. Well, see here, Smith, we must go a little easy there. Oh, no, no. But to advertise just now a big scheme of Negro education would drive the Cresswells, the Farmers League, and the whole business south dead against us. Yes, yes, indeed. They believe in education all right, but they ain't in for training lawyers and professors just yet. No, I don't suppose her school is... Well, then, see here. She'll be reasonable, won't she, and placate the Cresswells? No, I mean run the school to suit their ideas. No, no, but in general, along the lines which they could approve. Yes, I thought so. Of course. Goodbye. Inclined to be a little nasty, asked Taylor. A little sharp, but tractable. Now, Mr. Cresswell, the thing is in your hands. We'll get this committee, which Taylor suggests appointed, and send it on a junket to Alabama. You do the rest, see? Who'll be the committee, asked Cresswell. Name it. Mr. Cresswell smiled and left. 
The winter started in severely, and it was easy to fill two private cars with members of the new Negro Education Board right after Thanksgiving. Cresswell had worked carefully and with caution. There was Mrs. Gray, comfortable and beaming, Mr. Easterly, who thought this a good business opportunity, and his family. Mrs. Vanderpool liked the South and was amused at the trip, and had induced Mr. Vanderpool to come by stories of shooting. Ah, said Mr. Vanderpool. Mr. Charles Smith and John Taylor were both too busy to go, but bronchial trouble induced the Reverend Dr. Boldish of St. Faith's rich parish to be one of the party, and at the last moment Temple Bocum, the sociologist, consented to join. Awfully busy, he said, but I've been reading up on the Negro problem since you mentioned the matter to me last week, Mr. Cresswell, and I think I understand it thoroughly. I may be able to help out. The necessary spice of young womanhood was added to the party by Miss Taylor and Miss Cresswell, together with the silent Miss Boldish. They were a comfortable and sometimes merry party. Dr. Boldish pointed out the loafers at the stations, especially the black ones. Mr. Bocum counted them and estimated the number of hours of work lost at ten cents an hour. Do they get that? Ten cents an hour? asked Miss Taylor. Oh, I don't know, replied Mr. Bocum. But suppose they do, for instance, that is an average wage today. They look lazy, said Mrs. Gray. They are lazy, said Mr. Cresswell. So am I, added Mrs. Vanderpool, suppressing a yawn. It is uninteresting, murmured her husband, preparing for a nap. On the whole, the members of the party enjoyed themselves from the moment they drew out of Jersey City to the afternoon when, in four carriages, they rolled beneath the curious eyes of all Tombsville and swept under the shadowed rampart of the swamp. The Christmas was coming and all the southern world was busy. Few people were busier than Bless and Zora. Slowly, wonderfully for them, heaven bent in these dying days of the year and kissed the earth, and the tremor thrilled all lands and seas. Everything was good all things were happy and these two were happiest of all out of the shadows and hesitations of childhood they had stepped suddenly into manhood and womanhood with firm feet and uplifted heads all the day that was theirs they worked picking the silver fleece picking it tenderly and lovingly from off the brown and spent bodies which had so utterly yielded life and beauty to the full fruition of this long and silken tendril this white beauty of the cotton November came and flew, and still the unexhausted field yielded its frothing fruit. Today seemed doubly glorious, for Bless had spoken of their marriage. With twined hands and arms, and lips ever and again seeking their mates, they walked the leafy way. Unconscious, rapt, they stepped out into the big road skirting the edge of the swamp. Why not? Was it not the king's highway? And love was king. So they talked on unknowing that far up the road the Cresswell coaches were wheeling along with precious burdens. In the first carriage were Mrs. Gray and Mrs. Vanderpool, Mr. Cresswell and Miss Taylor. Mrs. Vanderpool was lolling luxuriously, but Mrs. Gray was a little stiff with long travel and sat upright. Mr. Cresswell looked clean-cut and handsome, and Miss Taylor seemed complacent and responsible. The dying of the day soothed them insensibly. Groups of dark little children passed them as they neared the school, staring with wide eyes and greeting timidly. There seems to be marrying and giving in marriage, laughed Mrs. Vanderpool. Not very much, said Mr. Cresswell dryly. Well, at least plenty of children. Plenty. But where are the houses? asked Mrs. Gray. Perhaps in the swamp, said Mrs. Vanderpool lightly, looking up at the somber trees that lined the left. 
They live where they please and do as they please, Cresswell explained, to which Mrs. Vanderpool added, like other animals. Mary Taylor opened her lips to rebuke this levity when suddenly the coachman called out and the horses swerved and the carriage's four occupants faced a young man and a young woman embracing heartily. Out through the wood, Bless and Zora had come to the broad red road. Playfully, he celebrated all her beauty, unconscious of time and place. You are tall and bend like grasses in the swamp, he said. And yet look up to you, she murmured. Your eyes are darkness dressed in night. To see you brighter, dear, she said. Your little hands are much too frail for work. They must grow larger then, and soon. Your feet are too small to travel on. They'll travel on to you. That's far enough. Your lips, your full and purple lips, were made alone for kissing, not for words. They'll do for both. He laughed in utter joy and touched her hair with light, caressing hands. It does not fly with sunlight, she said quickly with an upward glance. No, he answered. It sits and listens to the night. But even as she nestled to him happily, there came the harsh thunder of horses' hooves beating on their ears. He drew her quickly to him in fear, and the coach lurched and turned and left them facing four pairs of eyes. Miss Taylor reddened. Mrs. Gray looked surprised. Mrs. Vanderpool smiled. But Mr. Cresswell darkened with anger. The couple unclasped, shamefacedly, and the young man lifted his hat, starting to stammer an apology. But Cresswell interrupted him. Keep your, your philander into the woods, or I shall have you arrested, he said slowly, his face colorless, his lips twitching with anger. Drive on, John. Miss Taylor felt that her worst suspicions had been confirmed, but Mrs. Vanderpool was curious as to the cause of Cresswell's anger. It was so genuine that it needed explanation. Are kisses illegal here? she asked before the horses started turning the battery of her eyes full upon him, but Cresswell had himself well in hand. No, he said, but the girl is notorious. On the lovers the words fell like a blow. Zora shivered, and a grayish horror mottled the dark burning of her face. Bless started in anger, then paused in shivering doubt. What had happened? They knew not. Yet involuntarily their hands fell apart. They avoided each other's eyes. Ah! I must go now, gasped Zora as the carriage swept away. He did not hold her. He did not offer the farewell kiss, but stood staring at the road as she walked into the swamp. A moment she paused and looked back. Then slowly, almost painfully, she took the path back to the field of the fleece, and reaching it after long, long minutes, began mechanically to pick the cotton. But the cotton glowed crimson in the failing sun. Bless walked toward the school. What had happened, he kept asking, and yet he dared not question the awful shape that sat somewhere, cold and still, behind his soul. He heard the hooves of the horses again. It was Miss Taylor being brought back to the school to greet Miss Smith and break the news of the coming of the party. He raised his hat. She did not return the greeting, but he found her pausing at the gate. It seemed to her too awful for this foolish fellow thus to throw himself away. She faced him, and he flinched as from some descending blow. Bless, she said primly. Have you absolutely no shame? He braced himself and raised his head proudly. I am going to marry her. It is no crime. Then he noted the expression on her face and paused. She stepped back, scandalized. Can it be, bless Alwyn, she said, that you don't know what sort of girl she is? He raised his hands and warded off her words, 
dumbly as she turned to go almost frightened at the havoc she saw the heavens flamed scarlet in his eyes and he screamed it's a lie it's a damn lie he wheeled about and tore into the swamp it's a damn lie he shouted to the trees is it is it chirped the birds it's a cruel falsehood he moaned is it is it whispered the devils within it seemed to him as though suddenly the world was staggering and faltering about him the trees bent curiously and strange breathings were upon the breezes he unbuttoned his collar that he might get more air a thousand things he had forgotten surged suddenly to life slower and slower he ran more and more the thoughts crowded his head he thought of that first red night and the yelling and singing and wild dancing he thought of cresswell's bitter words he thought of zora telling how she stayed out nights he thought of the little bower that he had built her in the cotton field a wild fear struggled with his anger but he kept repeating no no and then at any rate she will tell me the truth she had never lied to him she would not dare he clenched his hands murder in his heart slowly and more slowly he ran he knew where she was where she must be waiting and yet as he drew near huge hands held him back and heavy weights clogged his feet his heart said on quick she will tell the truth and all will be well his mind said slow slow this is the end he hurled the thought aside and crashed through the barrier she was standing still and listening with a huge basket of the piled froth of the field upon her head one long brown arm tender with curvings balanced the cotton the other poised balanced the slim swaying body bending she listened her eyes shining her lips apart her bosom fluttering at the well-known step he burst into her view with the fury of a beast rending the wood away and trampling the underbrush reeling and muttering until he saw her she looked at him her hands dropped she stood very still with drawn face grayish-brown both hands unconsciously outstretched and the cotton swaying while deep down in her eyes dimly slowly a horror lit and grew he paused a moment then came slowly onward doggedly drunkenly with torn clothes flying collar and red eyes then he paused again still beyond arm's length looking at her with fear-struck eyes the cotton on her head shivered and dropped in a pure mass of white and silvery snow about her limbs her hands fell limply and the horror flamed in her wet eyes he struggled with his voice but it grated and came hoarse and hard from his quivering throat zora yes bless you-you told me you were pure she was silent but her body went all a-tremble he stepped forward until she could almost touch him there standing straight and tall he glared down upon her answer me he whispered in a voice hard with its tight-held sobs a misery darkened her face and the light died from her eyes yet she looked at him bravely and her voice came low and full as from afar i asked you what it meant to be pure bless and and you told and i told you the truth what it meant what it meant he repeated in the low tense anguish but but bless she faltered there came an awful pleading in her eyes her hand groped toward him but he stepped slowly back but bless you said willingly you said if if she knew he thundered back in livid anger knew all women know you should have died sobs were rising and shaking her from head to foot but she drove them back and gripped her breast with her hands no bless no all girls do not know 
I was a child. Not since I knew you, Bless. Never, never since I saw you. Since, since, he groaned. Christ, but before? Yes, before. My God. She knew the end had come, yet she babbled on tremblingly. He was our master, and all the other girls that gathered there did his will. I, I, she choked and faltered, and he drew farther away. I began running away, and they hunted me through the swamps, and, and then, then I reckon I'd have gone back and been as they all are. But you came, bless, you came, and you, you were a new great thing in my life, and, and, and yet I was afraid I was not worthy until you, you said the words. I thought you knew, and I thought that, that purity was just wanting to be pure. He ground his teeth in fury. Oh, he was an innocent, a blind baby, the joke and laughing stock of the country around, with yokels grinning at him and pale-faced devils laughing aloud. The teachers knew, the girls knew, God knew, everybody but he knew. Poor, blind, deaf mole, stupid jackass that he was. He must run, run away from this world, and far off in some free land, beat back his pain. Then, in sheer weariness, the anger died within his soul, leaving but ashes and despair. Slowly he turned away, but with a quick motion she stood in his path. Bless, she cried. How can I grow pure? He looked at her listlessly. Never, never again, he slowly answered her. Dark fear swept her drawn face. Never, she gasped. Pity surged and fought in his breast. But one thought held and burned him. He bent to her fiercely. Who? he demanded. She pointed toward the Cresswell Oaks, and he turned away. She did not attempt to stop him again, but dropped her hands and stared drearily up into the clear sky with its shining whirls. Goodbye, Bless, she said slowly. I thank God he gave you to me. Just a little time. She hesitated and waited. There came no word as the man moved slowly away. She stood motionless. Then slowly he turned and came back. He laid his hand a moment lightly upon her head. Goodbye, Zora, he sobbed and was gone. She did not look up, but knelt there, silent, dry-eyed, till the last rustle of his going died in the night. And then, like a waiting storm, the torrent of her grief swept down upon her. She stretched herself upon the black and flea-strewn earth and writhed. End of chapter 15